0: everybody welcome to episode number 59 of the between the cracks podcast i am your host bill and with me as always is my co-host chris chris pal we are back and we all need to know do you wanna uh, i don't wanna what <laughs> right you are little <laughs> buddy how are you
1: uh, well, I feel like a large piece of shite. That's but, right. Uh, we we
0: were gonna record the other night, but uh, unfortunately, uh, you had a uh, tummy ache.
1: <laughs> Did I ever? That's only one of the symptoms. <laughs> uh, I don't know whatever. There, I've some some stupid virus. But uh, rush the short people. It's not COVID.
0: I was gonna say. I don't think you're allowed to say the word virus anymore. You're not even allowed <laughs> to have the common cold anymore. <coughs>
1: That's right, there's only
0: one illness today. Chris, let's not get into politics, pal. It's funny how uh, viruses turn political, but that's uh, exactly what it is these days. But, bud, more importantly, no one cares about what's going on with uh, the world health issues. They're more concerned about what's going on in our lives since we've last recorded. I mean, not that anybody gives a shit, but uh, we talked about it in the past quite a bit. Our Spartan races, and we were finally back at it last week. Bud, what'd you think? Well,
1: if you know us, and I think you do at this point, just as uh, much of a procrastinator we are with you know, making these shows, imagine that when it comes to training
0: for races. No, it, did, it did not go well. It did not go well at all. Well, let's just put it this way. I don't know if you trained at all, but I didn't train at all. Well, I told you, I've been going to the gym, but I'm just lifting. I've done nothing cardiovascularly that's going to actually be beneficial to me out in a course um you know i could do all the little events there like the the hercules hoist that stone ball you got to carry i can do all that shit but uh when it comes to running dude i I just had nothing in the tank (laughs) and uh it didn't help matters that uh just
1: and i mean just as we arrived to the course a lovely downpour ensued and you know when you have obstacles to do that involve your hands it's you know it's not the best thing to happen (laughs)
0: <laughs> we we might as well just get uh, to the chase here and discuss what happened to me on the uh, monkey bars there. What's more important is that uh, you gave it your all. Unfortunately, what happened was I took it upon myself to attempt to skip a bar and then go directly to the second bar and then move forward and get my momentum going that way. As Chris had mentioned, it was a bit slick as I reached for the bar. <laughs> From my jump, <laughs> there was no traction at all. I mean, I grabbed onto it and went head over heels. I mean it was something that Mary Lou Retton herself would have been jealous of. <laughs>
1: Well, let me let me add that the judges gave you a nine point three on the
0: landing. <laughs> the Russian judges held me back from getting that gold medal, buddy. I took home the silver. And I, I believe when you hit the ground, I saw your soul leave your body, <laughs> dude. That was a hard that was a hard hit in front of everyone. But we did finish the race, and we got our little medal in our shirt. And uh, you know, we're we're still feeling pretty good about ourselves.
1: Yeah, I gotta say, you know, aside from a couple, uh, things that we didn't prepare for, uh, I I think we performed pretty well for, for not training. Yeah,
0: not bad at all. And, uh, more importantly, Chris, this is a great segue into what we're talking about tonight because pal, what goes up must come down because tonight, Chris, we are discussing the mysterious case of the 1942 U.S. Navy ghost blimp. And I say ghost blimp because two pilots went up and none came down except for the blimp itself. That's right. This blimp unfortunately crashed. When eyewitnesses saw this, they came running to help out. They opened up the gondola and uh, the two naval officers inside were nowhere to be found. Sounds very Bermuda Triangle-esque. Yeah, you're right. Um, it does, and uh, this actually takes place, Chris, over the San Francisco Bay, uh, an area that we've talked about quite a bit on this show. So you might have something there. Maybe this is the Bermuda Triangle of the West Coast. Chris, tonight we're going all the ways back to oh God, your birthday, August sixteenth, nineteen forty-two. Oh, that is that would when. Make me- 81 years old. I yes, think. indeed, Chris, please. Uh, let's move on. Uh, as I said, August 16th, 1942, that is when a U.S. Navy blimp, and yes, the U.S. Navy did deploy blimps at one point or another, and I had no knowledge of this, but we're going to get into the history of that in just a little bit. I thought this was actually a pretty cool fact, that it's something I never knew about. But um, anyway, so they uh, deployed this blimp, to take off from the naval station Treasure Island in the San Francisco Bay. Treasure Island is no longer functional. Its operations ran from 1942 till 1997. So it's been quite some time since Treasure Island was opened. But back in 1942, Treasure Island was in its infancy. So, Chris, as we said, this took place in 1942. So we're right in the middle of World War II. The military had to be very vigilant as far as protecting our coastline because you remember a year prior to that Pearl Harbor took place and there was an attack on U.S. soil so what the Navy did at this point was deploy these blimps as a cost effective way of guarding our shorelines from enemy attacks.
1: Yeah and obviously you know now the element of surprise is is over in some aspects because an attack has already occurred but there is also things that are not as easy to see such as submarines that could come through in the Pacific Ocean. So that that was also another reason why they were patrolling the waters to see if they can identify any of these Japanese submarines uh that could be patrolling the area. And these blimps actually have means of attacking submarines. Um and, and one of the the dangerous things about these blimps themselves for the people on board was that they were carrying depth charges. So th- this was something that typically, I think, you, you know, uh, naval ships carried where it was basically a timed charge where they would drop them off the back of the ship and uh, based on the time, the, char- the depth charge would explode. So if you, let's just say, sent out sonar or something and you, and you believed that a submarine was 50 feet depth-wise then you would put the charge accordingly to to allow it to sink enough so that it would explode at that depth. So it was basically the only real way that a ship above
0: the water could
1: attack a submarine. This was loaded onto these
0: airships. And not only was this L-8 blimp equipped with those depth charges that you had spoken of, but they also had a thirty caliber machine gun with 300 rounds of ammunition. So... At least for me i look at a blimp in the sky i'm like oh man it's almost like the manatee in the sky right they seem very docile they move very slowly you don't expect much i mean who would really expect a blimp to attack but they were ready to roll if need be i will say though uh perhaps
1: that hidden feature that other ships may not know of that it could just be like what the fuck is this balloon floating in the air just as much as that blimp may be dangerous to them My man, just about anything is dangerous to that blimp. (laughs) (laughs) A fucking BB gun. (laughs) Obviously, being in a blimp,
0: you you have to deal or be more cognizant anyway of your surroundings. But yeah, Chris, as you said, their job and the mission of the L-8 blimp was to locate and sink any potential enemy sub that they saw off the coast of San Francisco. Now, we keep using the term L-8 blimp. And before we move any further into the story, Chris, why don't you just tell us what exactly an L-8 blimp is? What does it even mean? There were
1: different classes of blimps. I believe that there was the L and then there was the K class as well. And there weren't many, obviously, because you know, uh, you're know you not going to construct a giant fleet of blimps, I guess. it's It's really not that useful, I would think. They actually used these blimps that were used for advertising by the Goodyear Aircraft Company these blimps were were not designed to, you know, be airships for the Navy, but upon, I I guess, someone thinking this might be a good idea, they actually started using them for for those purposes. So there was a fleet that was created by Goodyear, and, of course, you know the Goodyear blimps that are still used today, which uh, what you mentioned off-air about these blimps, about today's Goodyear blimps as well, that there is, you know, some tie into... Uh, I don't know, parts or, or same materials and stuff that were
0: used. Yes, uh, but before we move any further, Chris, I'm not so certain I like your use of the term blimp. Can we use something a little more subtle, such as big-boned? <laughs> <laughs> Chris, please, enough of the childish behavior. Yes, so uh, we're going to get into that at the end of the show. And I guess in addition to the five
1: commercial blimps that Goodyear had, they also created... Uh, Additional, so there was another four L-class airships that were built in the uh, assembly and repair shops at the uh, NAS NAS Moffett Field, and these were L nine through L twelve. Now we were talking about L eight, but they were completed by April of nineteen forty three. Then the last, this last lot of L airships that were uh, designated L thirteen through L twenty two were delivered by the end of 1943. So they, they, there was a, a decent amount, actually, of these airships in total. Um, and then, of course, at the end, the uh, Navy apparently had the gall to, to, to sell these right back to Goodyear <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> well,
0: our government has never been shy about making a profit, have they? <laughs> Indeed. But I think I did read that there were actually discussions about bringing these blimps back into uh, circulation within the military. And uh, I should have asked our roving field reporter, T-Bone, our friend of the show who's actually in the Navy right now, I should have asked him and consulted with him prior to this recording, but I did not. So uh, I'll ask him, you know, after this episode comes out. So, you know, it might be factual, it might not. We'll find out together. Chris, we are already running on borrowed time here. Let's get started on tonight's mystery. So as we said, this U.S. Naval blimp... An LA blimp took off from Treasure Island, California on 8 42, August 16th, 1942. And aboard were two pilots, Lieutenant Ernest Cody and get this, Chris, Ensign Charles Adams. And I had to look up what the term Ensign meant because I had never heard of it before. And apparently it has a dual meaning. A flag or standard, especially a military or naval one indicating nationality, or a commissioned officer of the lowest rank in U.S. Navy and Coast Guard, ranking above chief warrant officer and below lieutenant. So this guy, Adams, was below Lieutenant Cody, which is odd because... Cody, Lieutenant Cody, was 27 years old, and Ensign Adams was 32. Maybe he just joined the uh, service a little bit later. I just thought that was an interesting little fact here, but they do refer to them both as pilots, and I guess you'd have to. I guess you'd have to know at least the bare minimum, if you're going up there, how to pilot the blimp. They say
1: they're both experienced pilots, and it says this was the first time that Adams had flown in a
0: small blimp. On the early morning of august 16th the boys took off in a blimp and as we mentioned earlier their mission was simply to go guard the coast keep an eye out for any suspicious activity any submarines they might spot any ships that might be out there that you know would warrant a look at and that's exactly what cody and adams did so the boys took off roughly around 6 a.m out of treasure island all seemed to be going well and good that was until approximately 7 38 a.m when lieutenant cody called into headquarters giving their position and whatnot everything seemed fine they were about three miles east of the Line islands which are off the coast of san francisco four minutes later though he called in again saying that they had spotted a suspicious oil slick and remember we said oil slicks could be a sign of something hidden beneath the surface such as a submarine now with that information in hand chris this was the last time lieutenant cody or ensign charles adams were ever seen or heard from again
1: interesting because i don't know if it was a ship let's just say first of all i don't know if they are far enough off the coast that A ship could have been there where it would not have been spotted from the shore. Like you mentioned, there's the ability, I I guess, for it to be a submarine. And I don't know if that is like a potential common thing that happens with submarines, that they might release oil or some sort that would show up on the surface, or if if it meant that something could have been wrong with the ship.
0: That is actually one of the signs. And think about it. You know, if they're releasing oil in water, the oil would... You know, rise. As the saying goes, Chris, oil and water do not mix. So there's only one way for it to go, and that's up. So if you're not seeing any other large ships in the area, I guess if your job is to patrol the shoreline, that you would have to be suspicious that there is a submarine in the area. And that is very important information, of course, because
1: I'd imagine that the U.S. Navy knows where their ships are and their submarines. So as the kids say these days, WTF?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, and there were quite a few sightings of the blimp. I mean, obviously, it's hard to miss. So, you know, they're along the shoreline. They're a few miles out in the bay and whatnot. So people are seeing them. And there were actually eyewitness accounts that at one point, and I'm guessing this is when they spotted the oil slick, that the blimp had gone down about 30 feet above the ocean. So I'm thinking, obviously, they went down to... Investigate this oil slick that they saw. And now, oddly enough, people on the boats and ships passing by said that it was at that point they still actually saw Cody and Adams inside the gondola. That's how low they were. Which is
1: interesting because those two were not seen much in there for much longer, but no one saw them leave the blimp either.
0: So, as we said, they were patrolling the shoreline. So It should be noted that this patrol should take roughly four hours. So if they leave at 6 a.m., they should be returning by 10, 1030. You know, but now that they had spotted this oil slick, they had to go investigate it. And we said that the blimp was lowered down to roughly about 30 feet above the ocean. And it was at that point that they dropped these, what they call float lights. And they are flares that produce smoke. And they give off a warning. And that was still at 7, I think 7.38 to 7.42 in the morning. That's when they had notified the base that there were some suspicious looking slick out there. So there were ships in the area that thought that the L-8 was going to release the aforementioned depth charges that we spoke of in order to sink an enemy submarine. So the fishing boats in the area <laughs> lifted all their nuts and got the hell out of town.
1: That's interesting. I, uh, I'm i surprised that no one then were able to see the men.
0: As I said, they were able to see them in the gondola when they were roughly about 30 feet above. But the thing is, they never released those depth charges. So, I mean, even though the surrounding ships were cautious, they stayed in the area. And as the blimp began to rise after not releasing the charges, they circled around and stayed in that area. For about an hour and a half or two hours. So they were obviously concerned about something in the area and they kept patrolling it. And it was after the two hour mark, give or take, that they must have felt secure enough that there was nothing going on. So they begin to head back to shore. And that, Chris, is when all holy hell a breaks loose.
1: So as this blimp is heading, Towards shore, some onlookers, I guess, become a little bit alarmed because obviously, you know, I'm sure not everyone knows that the blimp's not where it's supposed to be, but it's kind of drifting uh, uncontrolled at this point. Instead of heading towards Treasure Island, it's actually flying into Daly City where people start to see this thing drifting for several minutes and then it, it starts to drag across
0: the roof of somebody's house and it lands in a nearby street in Daly City. And we should mention, Chris, that there are actually documented pictures of this. And it looks absolutely insane. Not only did that helium bag or whatever the hell they want to call it, the, the envelope of the uh, blimp there deflate, but it actually draped, o- <laughs> draped over some poor innocent bystander's home. And as you said, the, the gondola itself landed in the street and it looks pretty much undamaged. And I can't imagine that's an easy repair if you shred that thing. Think about it. <laughs> Think about the poor souls who, you know, if they did repair it, were the next ones to uh, take it up in the air and test it out. Can you imagine that thing deflating
1: over your entire house and you go outside to grab the the newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> All black. And, uh, my man, you're not going anywhere. <laughs>
0: well, um, that, that's the weird thing here, right? Because... You know, witnesses probably saw, you know, the first time that this thing descended, checking shit out in the uh, ocean and then rise back up, head back. Then they saw it descending again. And, you know, if you're keeping an eye on this, you might think like, oh, maybe they see something. And, you know, this is just standard protocol. Let's not be nervous. But it got too low, snagged on a cliff and then looks as if it hit some power line. And then came to a screeching and deflating halt. So now,
1: at this point, the biggest concern is the two passengers aboard the blimp. So upon opening the gondola,
0: people are perplexed. We're talking, this thing landed in Daly City. So there are tons of eyewitnesses, right? This is a populated area. So they see this thing come crashing down. I mean, they're you know, just mesmerized by what had just happened, and they all rushed to the aid of the crew. Am I right, Chris? I mean, I, that's a, I guess. And the crew was very receptive to the help, correct? Unfortunately, no. The, the crew
1: were missing, and the interesting part about that is that Obviously, at some point when they were flying above the water, the men could be seen inside the gondola, but between that time and them crashing ashore, nobody had seen anybody exit the gondola. One thing which kind of, I to me, would give away what, what kind of happened would be the fact that the two life jackets that were in were missing, but no one had ever seen them leave the craft. So, when did they get out
0: or how that's really weird man because when people went inside to look inside the gondola to help these guys it was noted that the life raft and three parachutes were left behind but as you're saying there were two life jackets that were missing and one would assume if you throw a life jacket on you know moments before your blimp crashes and you know there's tons of spectators you know you're going to be floating adrift in this ocean and there will be plenty of time to not only rescue you, but obviously spot you.
1: I mean, I guess I would understand why the parachutes would be left behind, because if they're at close proximity to the ground, you're not going to throw on a parachute to be useless at that point. But the life raft would obviously be very useful in the case of having to abandon in the water. So either they ran out of time and they only had enough time to throw the jackets on and then ditched, I know that the Pacific coastline has got a cold waterfront, but this is August, so we're not talking about a potential of you know getting hypothermia, I would think at this point
0: you You definitely have more of a chance of survival being in a San Francisco Bay in August than let's say uh January
1: that is correct,
0: but it's odd, so you know let's go back to the gondola for a second, so you got the life raft in there, you got three parachutes, and there's also a briefcase with the top secret documents that these two were in charge of were still in the gondola too. But what we don't have are the two pilots. If you
1: were in this aircraft and you're heading towards the coastline and you're about to make landfall, you would probably think your odds are better of jumping in the water than would be staying aboard the gondola and crashing into something and you know potentially dying that way. So if it were me, I would probably try to jump out into the water and if you're if you're descending i would imagine below 30 feet even at 30 feet i mean that's a that's a pretty far drop you know you're talking about three stories but it's not enough that would typically kill you unless you landed on a rock or something now i wonder though if they are instructed because they're i mean top secret documents are top secret documents but if they were to be crashing ashore on an enemy coastline versus their own, you know, country, I would imagine that'd be more important to dispose of those documents. But because they weren't, maybe they were instructed to keep them. God forbid these fall into the waters and drift and somebody picks it up enemy-wise in the Pacific Ocean versus it landing safely somewhat on the, you know, your country's shore. So I I wonder if that was part of the reason why they didn't take the documents with them.
0: What a very astute observation. Chris, I did not even think of that. You're absolutely correct. I mean, a couple things here. So we're going to dive into this in a second here, but how lucky did the bystanders get that this balloon did not explode once it hit these power lines? Lest we forget
1: the depth charges from the intelligence that we've gathered.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is that what we're calling it?
1: (laughs) It appears that one of the depth charges broke off from the blimp. So obviously that's a major concern. Uh, I, I don't know how easy it is for those to detonate without the timer being activated, but obviously a big enough hit or a hard enough surface that they, that they landed on, it could potentially cause an explosion. So thankfully that was not something that happened as well, aside from that crashing into a populated area where thankfully didn't land on anybody.
0: I mean, all in all, when you look at it, this is a very lucky situation. Aside from the two gentlemen that had gone missing, we shouldn't mention that the coast guard and the Navy acted immediately. As soon as that blimp crashed, they went out searching for Cody and Adams. It was a perfect day. Visibility was great. And from all accounts, the water was calm and get this, Chris, they spotted Nothing. There was no sign of them in that ocean.
1: You would imagine even if there was a life vest on them or something that might have come off some sign of maybe even their bodies in the water, but nothing, not even not one single sign that they were, you know, at any point in the water.
0: And that that's what makes this mystery so crazy. And, you know, we're still talking about this nearly 80 years later. And uh, I think at this point, we should get into some of the theories as far as what people tend to think happened to Cody and Adams. So let's get into the first one. The first one is that we mentioned about that oil slick and Adams and Cody lowered down to check out the slick and they were met with an enemy submarine with guns drawn. And it was at that point that the gentlemen were told to remove themselves from the blimp and get into the submarine that seems very unlikely just due simply to the fact (laughs) of all the eyewitness accounts of that blimp having been 30 feet off the ocean surface so i mean if they're spotting these guys inside the gondola they would obviously have spotted these gentlemen jumping from the gondola onto uh, the submarine or to the side of the submarine whatnot but there was no eyewitness account of that. So I'm throwing that one right out. And why the hell would you ever hop onto an enemy submarine? You're better off just taking your shots of raising that blimp and getting shot down. Which was probably a good probability because I think
1: I think most submarines had deck guns. So uh, I, I would assume if a submarine saw that they were spotted, they would just gun the thing down. Yeah,
0: but. and blast the thing. But obviously that's not what happened because it did make its way back to shore. And not only that, it was hovering around the area for over an hour and a half to two hours.
1: I should say we we can't discount anything, but
0: highly unlikely. (laughs) Way to cover your tail, Chris. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, let's toss that one to the side for right now. And let's say there's a very low probability of that happening. There was another theory that came out that was actually kind of (laughs) dramatic, Chris. And it entailed Cody and Adams being involved in a love triangle with a young lady. As I said, this is all speculation, so take this all with a grain of salt. Uh, The two uh, guys started fighting, (laughs) and they fell through the gondola door into the ocean and succumbed to the elements. But, Chris, we can discount that one. And you know why, pal? Because you hit us with the fact that two life jackets were missing so obviously these gentlemen did make use of the life vests so let's kick that one to the side too now uh there are two more that we uh can discuss here one is that (laughs) that and i i'm torn i i'm actually torn between these two and um i left these two for last because i i think it could kind of go either way one is that the gentlemen created the crash themselves and as soon as the gondola hit down they exited through the open door and uh, had a boat or some other vehicle waiting for them to drive them off in an, an effort to escape their naval commitment and head off into starting a new life basically saying that cody and adams went awol
1: i don't know how they would do that though
0: well, that's the thing. I think with this theory, there are just too many eyewitnesses because you're you're seeing this blimp descend and it's not coming down at rapid speeds. It's, you know, gradually descending. So the crowd had enough time to keep an eye on this thing and start heading over in its direction, especially once it hit the power lines. And once the gondola touched down in the street, it was already surrounded. So I think there would have been a ton of eyewitnesses to say that they saw two guys jet-setting it out of that uh, gondola door.
1: Everything, to me, goes back to those life vests. There was some reason why they put the life vests on. The thing that I would obviously suspect, whatever happened was an accident, I would imagine, because at whatever point they felt that they were in danger, they probably put the life jackets on. And at some point before they hit the shore they must have felt their chances were better to be in the water so they they jumped out
0: right you are chris and that is our last theory and that theory implies that one of the two men had to open the gondola door to fix something that was wrong with the outside of the blimp and in turn one of the guys fell and his crewmate jumped in after him, maybe throwing both life vests or putting his on and then throwing one down to the other officer there. And that seems obviously to make the most sense, right? That these guys had fallen out. One had fallen out and the other jumped in to help him because as you said, the two vests are missing. But the weird thing here is the vests were never found. Okay, so even if they didn't have time to get those two life vests on, the vests themselves should have still been found floating in the ocean, but they weren't.
1: So if we think about the oil slick in the water, and then right after they reported that, that was radio silence, right? Yeah. The very, very slight chance, I suppose, that if that oil slick was from a submarine, the submarine did get to the surface. The submarine noticed the blimp, and they were ordered out, or they would be gunned down, perhaps, you know, obviously... We know that they weren't gunned down because there was no signs of that. So they would have had to have jumped out and have gone aboard the enemy uh, submarine. But you'd imagine if you're calling in an oil slick, and the interesting part is that they lose communications right after that. So like that would, just the way it sounds, it almost sounds like there was a conflict. Because if you're calling in an oil slick that could be notifying of a potential enemy submarine... And then right after, it cuts out. So that's suspicious. The first claim of them being taken aboard, it's far-fetched. You know, unless, you know, the submarine came to the surface, saw them, and with the deck gun, ordered them down. You know, of course, they didn't take top secret documents with them, and they would never notify the enemy that they had them. So did they have control of the ship? And we know that on the way to the shore that they were spotted
0: by boats. But that's the whole thing here because the blimp then did raise back up into the air to its normal position and stayed and hovered around the area for, as we said before, roughly two hours or so, maybe a little less, and then made its way back to the coast. But instead of going to Treasure Island, it veered off and ended up in Daly City. So... That, to me, just doesn't make sense. I mean, it, it, it seems way too difficult of a hostage situation to pull off. I agree. I I, I think, and I'm just trying to
1: play different sides here, but I, I think the likelihood here is is not that it was an enemy.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing that strikes me as odd is the life vest missing. Maybe, maybe they weren't on the blimp itself. Maybe, you know, did somebody do... An inventory check on all the items that were there prior to takeoff, I, you know, don't know. Maybe, you know, they were left off accidentally and we just don't have that information. But if I'm looking at all the information in this case, I have got to guess that one of the gentlemen went out to fix something on the outside of the gondola and plummeted it into the ocean. The other guy went to try to help him and succumbed to the elements as well that may be the answer as to what happened to the missing life vests. so one guy goes out he falls then another guy goes he falls and they would be set adrift and even if they did suffer from hypothermia and whatnot their bodies would still be drifting out there in the ocean so chris that leads me to one thing and one thing only our most dreadful conclusion i already know what you're gonna say Mm mm-hmm shark attack it is the west coast too they're not uh strangers to great white sharks no they are not yeah man i mean that's the only conclusion that i can come to is that they fell from uh, the gondola and unfortunately were mauled by a shark life vest included i mean it's the only thing that makes sense to me otherwise why wouldn't a body still be drifting out there i, don't know. I mean they would have to have You know, left no evidence at all. Yeah, they would have to devour them pretty quickly. Plus, you would have tons of blood out there in the uh, ocean that would still be rising to the top, especially in that time frame in which the Coast Guard and the Navy reacted to this uh, distress call. So, Chris, that's it, bud. I mean, I I am as befuddled at the end of this case as I was at the beginning. I mean, all we can hope for is that uh, these gentlemen set off to uh, start a new life, and uh, God willing, uh, they made it. But uh, likely not. So, how about this, Chris? Uh, how about we go and start our uh, real lives and get the hell out of uh, podcast land for tonight? Because it has been a super long episode and uh, we nearly lost our entire recording. So, uh, why don't we quit while we're ahead and get the hell out of here? So, let me uh, give the rundown if I remember how to do it. I'm going to hit this high note on the first one. F. <laughs> I did it. Oh. F. Do you want to get That's else You can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Instagram at Between the Cracks Podcast. Uh, You can message me there. I'll get back to you. Um, What else, Chris? If you would like to uh, become one of our lovely patrons, you can um, just click on the link in the show notes. We have different tiers there. We offer different things. And uh, we are back on track. So we will be back weekly. If you by chance, want any, uh, BTC gear, you can get us at teespring.com and search BTC. And we are in the process of shifting gears. We will be leaving Teespring and introducing a new website to buy some of our lovely merchandise. So, uh, Chris, uh, we will reveal all that at a later date and time. So without further ado, why don't you say we wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land, the fondest, oh. Farewells. Whoa! Oh my God, dude! All right, I got my work—I got my work cut out for me. So uh, I think we need to let's try to get back to a weekly schedule so we don't have these type of fucking nightmares God, that does it. All right, man. All right, bro. Thanks, man. All right, later.